Can you all hear me? Yeah, we can. That's good. Hi, everybody. Huh? There you go. Wake up a little bit, family. That's good. Uh, Eric is right. We are continuing in Joshua today. And uh, I know we've been in it since the beginning of the year, and so it's been two months of this stuff. And so it's been a little, little rough sometimes with all these battles and things, but we have come finally to the last bit of the conquest. They get done today. And so these last three chapters are a beautiful thing because they get done. It can feel like dropping all of the bags and just falling into the house after a long vacation, and uh, we're ready to see these battles be done. But we cannot sleep on these chapters. They have some good stuff in them. These three chapters are the height of the momentum of the conquest. The battles come quick, and we can fly by them if we're not paying attention. But more importantly, the height of the momentum of these battles mirrors the height of the momentum of the spiritual growth and the spiritual just momentum that the people of God have in these chapters. And that's where we're going to spend our time. And so uh, to recap where we have been and uh, to get us up to speed, we're in Joshua. And in Joshua, Joshua and the people of Israel have crossed the Jordan River, made the river stop. God made the river stop, and they cross into the Jordan. They do some recommitment to the covenant and to God with uh, circumcision and making some monument there. And then we get the battles, the conquest season, where they win at Jericho, but then they lose at Ai. They're one and one on the season. And then they win AI after taking, taking some, like having a team meeting and handling a few things. They win AI, and then they lose at Gibeon when the Gibeonites trick them. That was last week. And so now they are two and two. And then they start steamrolling in these chapters. This is like every sports movie in the last two decades. They fail a little bit. There's like a cool montage. And then they just start going, and they win the championship. So we come to chapters 10, 11, and 12. But what we're going to look at not, is not the battles, but what the battles are shining a light on in each chapter. In chapter 10, it shines a light on how the Lord fights for his people. Chapter 11 shows us that his people respond to that with unafraid obedience. And chapter 12 shows us that his people respond in worship. There's one big truth about the Lord, two responses for his people. This is where we're diving in. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 10. I'm going to point out a few verses in, in that one and in all the chapters. Uh, let's get there. And chapter 10 shows us again that the Lord fights for his people. Here's how the story goes. Chapter 10 starts off with the king in Jerusalem. Not a good king, not an Israelite king. This is not David. This is a couple, of ye couple hundred years before that. This is an evil king in Jerusalem. He calls up his four buddies and says, hey, the Israelites made a treaty with Gibeon. They beat Jericho and Ai. We got to stop this. And we're going to stop this thing together. So he gets those four buddies. They all gather up and they go against Gibeon right down the street from Jerusalem. And so Gibeon, they're smart, right? They acted with cunning last time. They're a little smart. They're like, man, five versus one, we cannot do this. They call up the Israelites. Hey, we made a treaty with you. We need some help. Come on up here and protect us. Now, the Gibeonites are known liars, and Joshua has learned something from the last time around with these guys. He learned to listen to God this time. And so, what does God tell him when he asks? Joshua 10, verse 8, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands, not a man of them shall stand before you. God says, green light, let's go, let's get them. The battle account here is interesting, though, because it's not about the Israelites fighting. 
It's more about what the Lord is doing and how he's fighting. The next verse says that the Lord threw the enemy into a panic. He says that the Lord threw the hailstones down on the enemies and that the Lord actually killed more people with the hailstones than any sword. And Joshua isn't even seen swinging a sword. Instead, he's praying. It's a good prayer too. God listened to it. He made the sun and the moon stand still. And for an enemy that believes in a storm god, a sun god, and a moon god, this would throw them for a loop. This would challenge everything they think about, about who a real, most powerful god is. And then we get the first instance of the most important phrase in chapter 10. Joshua 10, 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man. Here's a phrase. For the Lord fought for Israel. If the descriptions of the battles didn't register it now, it should be as clear as day. The Lord fights for his people. So they win there. Win when the Gibeonites, these strong warrior people, said, no, we can't do this. The Lord and Israel go five versus one and win. After this, the Israelites start a warpath on the rest of the chapter. And it reads actually more like a monster truck rally, where it's just Israel just rolling up to a city or a king and crushing it. Did we get that picture? We did. That's good. Uh, It's more like a monster truck rally where they roll up and crush these guys. And then at the chapter finally ends with Joshua 10, 42 verses 43. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because, here's a phrase, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with them to the camp at Gilgal. Friends, the, the battles take a back seat in this, in this story, in this chapter. And the prayer and the miracle of the sun and the moon standing still and the hailstones coming down, all those, all those things point to the one truth that God fights for his people. The Lord fights for his people. He has made a promise And he has plans and purposes for his people's good. He made a promise to the descendants of Abraham that they would get this land. He would bless them so they could bless the world. And he is making this happen. He didn't step aside. He didn't leave and have them carry out what he wanted to do. But he steps in. He fights for his people. He is doing actually more than they are. So let me help this stick. On my days off, Me and my three daughters, I got three daughters, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. And we make pancakes together. It's super fun. I, as their dad, have promised to feed them, and I know they need food, so we make food for them. But when we make pancakes together, who do you think actually makes the pancakes? Some of you are like, his wife, Amy, does. (laughs) That is not true. Dada does. I do it. I'd make the pancakes in our house. The girls help scoop the ingredients, they pour them into the bowl, they crack the eggs, they mix it all up. But whose hand is guiding all of that? Whose hand is making sure all those ingredients are the correct amounts and get in the bowl? It's Dada. Because Dada cooks for his children. Sometimes with them, sometimes not. And yes, Mama cooks for her children too, but Dada and Mama cook for their children. Similarly, God fights for his people. It's him doing it. He's making it happen. This is how he operates throughout history. Let's look at the height of this in the Scripture. The height of this in the Bible is the gospel, where it says that the 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together in eternity past and made a plan for the Son to come as a man, to live perfectly, die, taking our place on the cross, taking our place in our punishment, and rose again to give us life. Why? So that through faith, His death could forgive us and that we could have new life in His resurrection life to save us, to accomplish this for us, to beat sin and evil for us, to fight for us. We were not in the room when that happened. We weren't even alive when Jesus walked the earth. He did all of that for us. It's Him at work in the world to bring people to salvation before we even show up. Yes, we hear the gospel, and we believe in faith, and we respond, and we pray, but even through all that, God is fighting for us. He is working in us. He is doing what we cannot do for ourselves. At City Light, I know there are a lot of battles that go on every day. Life can seem like one ginormous battle. Where those battles come into contact with the promises and plans of the Lord, He is fighting for us. When we're trying to reconcile with somebody, not trying to win an argument or show them up or just feel like we've won over that relationship, when we are trying to reconcile with another person and bring peace to a relationship, He is fighting for us. When we're fighting against sin that we see in our lives and we want it gone and it's messing up our relationships, it's messing up how we think, He's in it. He's fighting that sin for us. And when we're fighting to take the gospel to new places, when we're fighting to take the gospel into the darkness where the evil is trying to push the gospel and the good news of Jesus back, we need to know that He is fighting for us in those moments. He's doing more to push the gospel into those places than we could ever dream of doing. Friends, this is a joyful way to think about God and how He works in our lives and how we follow Him. It makes a joyful just hope and a joyful expectation that he's going to do something. He is promising to fight for his people. And we can expect that he'll show up. So if he's fighting for his people, where does that leave us? What's our part in this? That's the next chapter, chapter 11, where we see that his people respond with unafraid obedience. Let me recap chapter 11. Chapter 11 starts out a lot like chapter 10, where one king, king of Hatzord, starts gathering a bunch of people, only this time it's a ton of people. They, start, they stop naming cities and kings and just start naming people groups. This is a huge army. I imagine in my head that cranky Canaanite grandmothers with their frying pans are getting suited up, ready to go to war and take out these Israelites. This is a huge army. That's not true. <laughs> that doesn't actually happen. Just in my head. But it's a huge army. It even says that they have horses and chariots, which are the Middle Bronze Age version of tanks. Like, those things are scary. It's a huge army, and their army is described as a great horde in number like the sands of the seashore. Now, that phrase should give us pause, sands of the seashore, because God promised Abraham that his descendants who follow him would be like the sands of the seashore, and they're not yet. So this goes to serve the, and, and to show us that this is like the evil, idolatrous opposite 
of the people of God. It's being set up as an incredible battle. Israel is outgunned and outmanned. So what does God say? Joshua learned his lesson. What does God say? Joshua eleven six. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Green light, baby, let's go. They're out, outgunned, yep, outmanned, yep. Is that a problem? No, not at all. Go get them. What does Joshua do? Joshua eleven nine. 9. Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. He obeyed. He took out the horses and the chariots. God told him to do that because these tanks, these scary things, he didn't want the people to use those things against their enemies because he wanted to teach them that you trust in God, not in weapons. And then through the rest of the chapter, Israel defeats this horde of people and their towns. And then we get to the end of this chapter that Eric read for us a little bit ago, where they go up even against the Anakim. These are the giants that they were afraid of back when the 12 spies spied out the land. The reason why they didn't go into the land, because of fear and these people. But they found out that they can beat them too. They didn't turn away in fear that this time, they defeated them. And then they had rest from war. Finally, this is good news. But even through all these victories, what shines brightest in this chapter is the unafraid obedience of Joshua and the people of Israel. God is still fighting for Israel. For Israel. He is not. He didn't leave after chapter 10. He's still making his promises happen. And three times, three times it tells us that Joshua did just as the Lord commanded him. Joshua learned and believed that since God is fighting for his people, that even against the craziest odds and the biggest enemies, that he can respond with unafraid obedience. And we can take a cue from Joshua and learn the same lesson, that when we believe that the Lord fights for his people according to his promises and plans, it will fuel our unafraid obedience to his word. I'm going to say it again. When we believe that the Lord fights for his people according to his promises and plans, it will fuel our unafraid obedience to his word. This obedience is unafraid because of the Lord, because of his power, because he's at work. And I know what happens. It happens in my head too. When I see a biblical command, I start this this game of assessing the negative impact it might have on my life. I say, man, if I start obeying God, Things might change, and change is scary. I'll have to cut sinful stuff out. I'll have to pray or read Scripture. I might seem like a religious nut or weird. I might have financial hardship, personal or relational struggle. I might even think I'm weird. I might even fail at it or think I'm a failure at it. I know the things that go in our heads. It happens to me too. But look, Jesus is gentle The Lord is a loving Father, and the Spirit is called our Helper. In both chapters, the Lord reassures Joshua to be unafraid in what he's asking him to do. He knows the thoughts and the fears that go on in our heads, and he comes and reassures us, and then he proves that we don't need to be afraid when he's calling the shots. He's not trying to manipulate our emotions to get get us to do what he wants. 
He addresses our fears head-on by a reassurance that His hand is in it, and He proves that we can trust Him. And so we can step in unafraid obedience, like a young lady in our college group, Bella, who took steps of unafraid obedience to move into the dorms at Iowa Western, took steps of unafraid obedience to proclaim the gospel to her friends, and now she's baptized her two roommates. The Lord, amen, the Lord is fighting for those girls, for Bella, and for those girls she baptized. And Bella took steps of unafraid obedience to follow after God. Even if there is still fear in us, taking steps of unafraid obedience means that you're not acting out of those fears. You're acting against them, and you're acting to obey your Savior, your King, who fights for you. We also need to remember that this unafraid obedience is obedience. It's not unafraid going after people or thinking we're in some battle that's a personal vendetta or a personal opinion. We obey King Jesus and His Word. If we see the words in Scripture in proper context, we obey it. If we hear the word, His Word from the Spirit and it's confirmed in Scripture, we obey it. If we hear from a brother or sister in Christ who is speaking God's Word to us and we confirm that in Scripture, we obey it. This last one I want to highlight, because chapter 11 gives us a good model of how this works. It's called the telephone game, where the Lord speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to Joshua, and then Joshua does it. He obeys it. This is a good picture of what we call discipleship, where mature believers, or just believers in general, are trying to help another one follow Jesus and to continue after him, to continue to obey him, to continue to believe in him. So let me speak into this. Disciplees, people that have another person investing in you to help you grow and help you mature and help you follow Jesus. If they are telling you something that is from God's Word, that is from Him, have a soft heart and do it. Obey it. Because it's not just them speaking, it's God speaking through them for your good. So obey it. Have a soft heart. Listen to it. Heed it. Confirm it in Scripture. Ask the questions. But if it's coming from the Lord through them, obey it like it's coming from God. Joshua still ran after what Moses told him to do, unafraid, with unafraid obedience, because it was Moses telling him what God told him. Disciplers, the fancy biblical term for people that are investing in another person to help them follow Jesus, to grow, This is for even people that want to be disciple makers, people that help another person grow in Jesus. And parents, this is going to help you too, to help you obey the Lord's command to to disciple your kids and bring them to the gospel and show them Jesus. Let me help here. A foundational part of discipleship is telling them, whoever we're discipling, what the Lord has already said. Telling them directly from Scripture or through your life, If he said it, repeat it. It's easy. Just repeat what he's saying. I want to give you confidence that that this is the foundation you can start at this point. If it's written in his word, say it again louder for the people in the booth next to you at McDonald's when you're having the conversation. We don't need to complicate this discipleship process. And we don't have to be the wisest and smartest and the most mature believers discipling another one. We just keep saying what the Lord has already said. 
I was discipling uh, a couple of older gentlemen uh, one time in a coffee shop, and uh, they had been following Jesus for longer than I had been alive. Like, they are, whoo, they were following Jesus for 30-some years. But this instance, we were talking about reading our Bibles and staying consistent and being in Scripture. And I turned to Psalm 1, a chapter that has helped me, like, start doing that and stay committed to reading Scripture. And all I did was read it and talked about the part where uh, Scripture should be a delight, where the law of the Lord is a delight, and how we should meditate it on day and night. I'm just kind of talking about what the Scripture says. And I was asking questions, well, where do we see something in Scripture that, that we really liked, that was a joy to us? And what about thinking about it all, all through the day? Where do we see the depth of Scripture? Like, where have we seen the depth of Scripture that, that kind of encourages us to, to keep reading it, to think, keep thinking about it and wrestle with it? And we talk, as we talked about it, our eyes were open, mine and theirs, to the joy we found in his word, to the things like love and the strength of the Lord and the hope that he has for us. And we started thinking about the depth of Scripture and how we keep reading the same passages, but it's new stuff keeps coming up, a new way that, that God is working it into our heart. And we got excited for it. I didn't say anything fancy, but the Lord fights for his people, and it wasn't me. I'm just, I was just some young pastor talking about Scripture, and it cut to our hearts. I didn't have a three-point sermon memorized. I didn't even think about what I was going to say. I literally just winged it and was like, I'll just read Scripture, and it'll, it'll be good. And it was. God works. He fights for His people. And so we can take steps of unafraid obedience into His big command of multiplying disciples, to make disciples, and we take people in that to His Word. All that to say, when we believe that the Lord fights for his people, according to his promises and plans, it will fuel our unafraid obedience to his word. So I don't know what the Lord is prompting you with this week, today, this last month, year. The Lord is working in all of us in his own way, bringing about his plans and promises to us. But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to step into what he's calling you with unafraid obedience to his word because he's fighting for you. He's in that battle with you. So where does this all lead? It leads to chapter 12 in the second response of his people. And that response is that his people respond with worship. Now, if you've read chapter 12, it may not seem like it at first. This is a list of Israelites' victories on the east and west of the Jordan River. So let me explain where, where chapter 10 and 11 have all these exciting battles and miracles and all that. Chapter 12 goes, that was great. Let's count it up. And quite literally, it does count it and does some ancient Near Eastern math at the bottom. It says there was 31 kings that Joshua beat. Like, it does math for us. So thank you, Bible. And out of context, this is a boring list that we might skim over in a read through the Bible in a year plan. And I have heard zero Life verses come out of Joshua 12. Like, you read it, it's not that exciting. But in context, after seeing God fight for his people and his people respond with unafraid obedience, chapter 12 turns into an account of the glorious work of the Lord. The glorious work of the Lord to bring about his promises. Joshua might be 31 and 2. 31 wins, 32 or 2 losses. But the Lord is undefeated. 
And chapter 12 is proving it. It's his crown. It's his glory where every name and place is a reason to worship the God who rescues and keeps his promises. Chapter 12 can encourage us to keep our own record of what the Lord has done in our life, to simply write down where he stepped in, where he showed up, where he flexed his power in our lives. And it can be for no other purpose than to remind us and to keep us worshiping him. So literally get some paper and a writing utensil and write it down. Write down what he's done in your life. Write down what he's done in other people's lives. It's a glorious account of what the Lord has done. Because when we fast forward to Christ's return, and in Revelation where we get to see God in all his glory and we get this picture of these 24 elders that have crowns and they throw them to the throne of God. And every people from every nation on earth in Revelation 5, 12 say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They're not concerned about what they did. They know who did it. They know that their Savior did all of this. So they worship Him. And recording our work, or the work of the Lord in our lives, like chapter 12, like we can do, is capturing a glimpse of Jesus in his worthiness. It's not focusing on our obedience in all this. It's focusing on the Savior who made it all happen. So let's remember that he fights for his people. And from that, let's respond to his word with unafraid obedience, knowing that he fights for us. And then let's respond with worship when we see him at work. Let's pray, everybody. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you keep promises. Father, that you are fighting for us in your good will and in your good plan for us. Father, may we know this. May it get into our hearts. May we believe it so that we can respond to you with unafraid obedience. That we would know that you're at work in these things and that we can respond. We can obey. and We don't have to worry. Father, that we can step into unafraid obedience with you. And Father, when you do these things, help us to remember what you've done. Help us to worship you in these moments. Mm -hmm. As we write them down, as we remember them, as we come back to them years later, help us to worship you for where you have been at work in our lives, where you've been at work in other people's lives. Father, help us to remember. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.